Greetings, friends of the great beyond. This is your ghost, I mean host, ready to take you behind the veil of terror and leftist critique. Welcome to the Horror Vanguard. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to the first installment of our brand new series, The Socialist Seances. John and I are going to be talking with uh, activists, organizers, and academics on the left, discussing how uh, spookiness, the gothic, the horrific intersect with both their work personally and their work in more activist and organizational circles. Today, as our very first guest, we have the honor of having uh, Laura Kalinari with us. Laura, how's it going? Uh, it's going great. I love the name so much for the series. It's really awesome. We we have like drawn a Ouija board on the back of our, of our communist <laughs> of the communist manifesto. Perfect. And, and you have appeared on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna get we're gonna get the ghosts of Marx and Engels in here, and it's gonna be wonderful. We're gonna chat <laughs> that, that's it up. The, yeah, that's that's the whole goal of this project is to accumulate enough occult left power to just summon <laughs> Marx back. <laughs> I think it's gonna work. I feel good about that. It's a, a long-term goal, but if that's, you know, what brings about the revolution, uh, let's do it. Let's make it happen. <laughs> we're, we're all here to do our part. <laughs> hey, a diversity of tactics, right? Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's mm -hmm. it's the greater work as a community that counts. <laughs> fun, um, fun behind-the-scenes horror vanguard fact. Uh, Laura, you were actually the very first person to reach out to the show back before the show even existed. I think a yeah. month before when we did our, like, first, like, tweet, like, hey, we're starting a podcast. You, you you commented, like, immediately. I don't know how you found us floating in the ether, <laughs> but it was fantastic. So yeah. only appropriate that you're our first guest. Yeah, I was following John on Twitter for a while, which I had gotten connected to through Rev Left Radio, so another leftist podcast. Um, and I had heard uh, you talk about Gothic Marxism. And uh, after that, it was sort of like, okay, yeah, I'm going to be following you and see what your work's <laughs> like. And then Horror Vanguard popped up and I was just like yep that's there it's like you personally made a podcast for me I that's so cool and <laughs> and I think once again we have to shout out Brett from Rev Left because yes. the 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 genuinely jaw-dropping number of people who um he is a kind of kind of uh, connection point for like, yeah the podcast left is basically like <laughs> 90% of people who know Brett from Rev Left. Spiritual conduit. We'll add him to the, we'll the seance table. It, it is how I found most of my podcast recommendations. So. Yeah, basically. <laughs> so, uh, Laura, for, for maybe people who, um, who don't uh, know you or haven't come across your work before... Uh, how many people uh, how would you how would you introduce yourself what's <laughs> what what are you about basically yeah what am i about great question <laughs> i'm <laughs> i'm a phd student at u chicago um i work a lot on i work on latin america in particular i'm in a department of romance languages so i say latin american literature and culture uh, i study the dictatorships uh mostly in the southern cone which would be argentina chile uruguay and brazil um i also dabble a little bit on the spanish Franco's dictatorship. Um, and in particular, I'm, I'm really interested in sort of elements of horror that come
come through in sort of mainstream fiction um, and in horror film uh, and how that's used to, to deal with the sort of repressed memory of a lot of, of, of these very terrifying events, um, the way that sort of life becomes horror and, and horror becomes life when you're exposed to these, these really um, vicious authoritarian regimes. Um, and, and that's what I, that's what I work on. And, and part of that has to do with the right wing and, and, um, some surprisingly interesting occult figures, some spiritism, some, um, secret Masonic lodges that are, are manipulating the strings of events behind the scenes, which is, is always very exciting. Um, in, and I'm not talking about the CIA. Um, <laughs> oh, shots, shots fired. <laughs> so sick burn, sick burn. Sick burn, sick burn. Um, yeah, and then in the meantime, because, you know, a couple of years, you know, into grad school, I, I reached the point where I was like, oh, yeah, I have not been doing any any organizing in the real world. And it gets very isolating sometimes to be like, uh, oh, you know, I'm going to make a really big difference with this, this, these thoughts on the right wing that are going to come out six years from now. Um, so at a certain point, I was like, okay, I'd really like to get more involved in on the ground work. So here in Chicago, I work with Democratic Socialists of America. I mostly do socialist feminist fundraising. Um, I'm involved nationally as well, helping coordinate some of our national efforts on that, um, doing a lot of reproductive justice work, um, thinking a lot about women and feminism and and the patriarchy and how that relates to capitalism. Hell yes. Yeah. All uh, that is fantastic. That is that is a brilliant that is a brilliant introduction. And it is we are we are so so good, glad that you have decided to swing by the horror vanguard crypts. <laughs> oh, um, thank you so much. But I think we want to kind of start by maybe talking a little bit more in detail about your work. Um, yeah. So, so, Ash, over to you. Yeah, so uh, prior to starting the re recording, we were talking a little bit about your academic work and kind of like specifically a few of the papers you've written and the things you're interested in. And I wanted to jump off uh, by talking about your kind of study and review of Arthur Barrio's Trujas Exanguentadas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so... Very interesting installment art piece, and I uh, kind of want your take on that. It is honestly like fascinating but 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 fascinating particularly for its disgustingness yes um i'll describe this like a little bit more in detail but the mm -hmm. my preliminary warning i always give to people is that while i was preparing like a class presentation on this i actually started to become physically like feeling oh, no. physically ill and i'm not one of those very sensitive you know i actually i deal with really terrible stuff every day i read about torture and murder all the time um which is awful obviously but i have a thick you know a thick skin and and uh at this point you know i was writing about this and looking at all these photos of the installation from the 70s and i was like oh okay i've gotta like take a break for a minute and have a cup of tea <laughs> basically what happened um for for listeners who might not know, uh, Brazil was one of many Latin American countries to have a dictatorship in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Um, their dictatorship came in a couple of phases. It got more severe around 68, 69, 70. Um, when more or less, you know, they sort of like recalled the writ of habeas corpus. Um, there was a lot of censorship. And, and what happened more or less was that there was there was a lot of kidnapping and torture of political dissidents. Uh, the numbers in Brazil in comparison to um, uh, the other Latin American countries aren't super high in terms of deaths. Um, they've got that, I think, in the, a couple hundreds. Uh, but in terms of actual kidnappings and, and political imprisonments that involve torture, much, much higher. And these were all left-wing dissidents, um, of course. 
Um, this is a right-wing military regime, uh, very virulently anti-communist. Um, and so under sort of like these conditions of censorship, they, you know, culture goes on, culture continues um, still. Um, but Artur Bajio, who is a really, really, really fascinating artist, and they was involved in sort of this like... Um, like vanguard art movements and things like that in the late 60s early 70s uh put together this piece specifically for an an exhibition that was held in a public park the work was the trochas ensanguentadas uh translates to bloody bundles that gives you a bit of an idea of what it looks like uh before looking it up if if you need to do that but um they are exactly that these sort of blunt bundles of cloths and refuse and blood and meat and bones um sort of like took the trip to the butcher shop and like went to town and there's actually these these photos of him assembling them that are like very um he looks like the mad scientist sort of or like mad butcher in like a horror film um so even those photos which aren't even technically you know there's the art piece itself but sort of part of this was like it's a happening it's an actualization it was it was called a situation um where there was the act of putting the bundles together and then placing them and and what he ultimately did was place them in uh the middle of this public park on like sort of a regular sunday and not tell anybody um that it was part of an art piece and so a lot of the remainder of the photos are are of like families and officials sort of coming across these they were left at sort of the the like a dry river riverbed and in the park the police were called and like had to take them away and like test them to like make sure they weren't human remains and things like that um and it sort of caused a whole big to do so that was the, that was the happening, the situation that happened. And, and part of what's so engaging about those is they're extremely visceral. And the idea is it sort of evokes a disappeared political dissident and the like tortured and mangled body um, that is that is suppressed by the right wing because they're like an open secret that everybody knows this is happening, but there's no confrontation with it. Um, and so in that moment of encountering the bloody bundle and not knowing what it is, that is a forcible confrontation with something that is evokes the disappeared person, but is not. So there's actually a lot of ethical implications there, but it's, it's really nuanced, I think, to figure out. And so part of my work is, was to focus on what's the experience of the object there. What does it mean to encounter this horrible object that isn't just an object in and of itself, but evokes a much larger political context. I think that's really interesting. And it taps into a kind of a bigger uh, debate in Gothic studies between a kind of haunting where there is um, nothing where there should be something, you know, a kind mm-hmm. of abs- and the and there's a kind of more slightly terrifying point where there there is something where we've been kind of culturally or ideologically conditioned to expect there to be nothing. You know? Yeah, absolutely. And there's sort of a difference between, you know, there's the specter is like the very big spectrality studies is the huge thing. And so that is very commonly evoked in Latin American dictatorships, um, particularly because of the desaparecidos. So the people who were vanished by the dictatorship and their bodies were never recovered is is one of the most powerful figures. And so um, they sort of haunt from an absence. And this is taking it from another direction. It's the forcible reapparition of of the the bloody corpse. That is fantastically interesting. This is something that just sprang to mind. Like, like I was wondering if you had made any connections between 
between this work and the um, Situationist International, specifically like Deternamal, because this, this is kind of thinking of like this is an art piece that is specifically designed to be aggressive and impossible to kind of recapitulate to the dominant hegemonies in capitalism. Yeah, absolutely. And part of, you know, like another thing that happened at that same um, exhibition or, or festival or, you know, what whatever you might call it, was a, a piece called Tiradenchis, which evoked um, a, a general. Um, this was also the like location, but it evoked the name of this this general, um, not in the present day, but in the past. And they, for whatever reason, chose to like burn alive several different chickens, like in front of people so it's fitting in you're exactly right within this context of sort of like aggressive confrontation um and also uh a decommodification of the art market as well because there is it's sort of like there's no like exhibiting this like this occurs in a moment but also his work in particular the the bundles decompose so you can leave them but they are essentially like trash and there's no like preservation of that artwork or commodification of that artwork because it's going to just get more and more disgusting the more you leave it in one place um and so it's really impossible to to spit into the sort of wider global market of art um in the capitalist sense so a sort of double layer of spectrality you know trying to bring bring back what's been made hidden but that too is going to be kind of it's going to it's going to compost it's going to it's going to literally rot away um which is a profoundly gothic idea the gothic's always been always been sort of fascinated with it with the idea of a kind of the public the public nature of corruption oh absolutely yeah and that is, I mean, you know, just thinking about the Brazilian context today, that the thing that fascinates me about these things that happen in the late 60s, 70s, 80s, um, you know, and, and this can be said about most things with capitalism in the past few decades, is that it just keeps coming back with like a new face. Mm. Um, the Scooby-Doo monster, um, you know, a new mask underneath another mask underneath another mask sort of thing of capitalism. It was um, old. It was old man reactionary all along. <laughs> all along, the whole time, and so. Um, but yeah, you know. Now speaking of of corruption, and and they imprisoned a left a left wing um, president Lula, who was who was then running again for president at the time. Um, they there was a soft coup essentially against Dilma Rousseff, who was also um, you know relatively left wing and you know nobody's nobody's perfect but um but was held accountable for sort of a corruption scandal that that was no different from any other type of corruption that any politician in brazil was being involved in um is sort of the the general um argument that they were held to a standard that no one else is being held to and it's not really about corruption it's it's about um taking advantage of that as an excuse to you know depose left-wing governments and now we've got bolsonaro who is you know is deeply attached to to not just corruption in the sort of like standard politician money sense but but to deaths like that of marielle franco whose murder is is now being linked to hitmen who happen to live in the same condo um uh complex as bolsonaro's son um, so yeah, you know, thinking about how this is, is continues to be a relevant 
this ephemeral artwork, um, the corruption has just sort of continued to fester. Um, this battle between between left and right wing and the right wing abuses in in no way, shape, or form has become less violent or or less aggressive. Um, it just it just got quieter for a little while. Um, so so that's the other thing about my work is you know this is all things that that happened and they're done and they're in the past, but they have. You know, like the Gothic teaches us, mm-hmm. the past is the past is never past, and they continue to sort of uh, come back with a vengeance in the present. Yeah, I was I was going to say that, that isn't that just like the fundamental mode of Gothic haunting that it's the past incurring onto the present. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So we will see, we will see, and that's why I, I value that very much as part of my work that it should be in some way um, not viewed as being distant from the here and now, but but newly relevant over and over again as right-wing governments uh, come to power again in, in Latin America, ostensibly this time through democratic means. But, um, you know, that's always tends to be a question mark. Yeah, air quotes, democratic air, means. Democratic, democratic means like jailing your, your most popular opponent. But... <laughs> So another another interesting aspect of your work uh, that I wanted to bring up and discuss, if you would be so kind, is the connections you make between uh, Gothic film and the dictatorship in Uruguay. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So there's this one. This is, you know, another thing just thinking about sort of like pop culture and film, like what what it is that's very appealing to people. Uruguay is a very, very small country. Um, they, they do not put out a lot of films each year and they have within their own market, it's very small. Um, and so they deeply rely on sort of an international market. Um, but they had one of the, like just a wildly, wildly popular horror film in 2011 called La Casa Muda, which, uh, it translates in English to Silent House is the title. Um, it got an English language remake starring, I think it's Elizabeth Olsen. Really? Um, yeah. Wow. <laughs> not like an amazing remake either, especially because the the conceit of the first one was that it was all made in one shot, which is really I, I'm, yeah. I'm I'm almost certain like incorrect, like just a marketing ploy because mm-hmm. there's something like the ca- the camera they shot it on. It was actually impossible to to do that, and so there's a couple <laughs> times where they like they like move to it's like the whole room is black and so you're like okay yep. that's where that's where you're, you're that's, editing where, the that's where together. the cut is that's where the cut <laughs> yeah. is <laughs> yeah but um but even even so i mean it's it's very few cuts it's a very like present movie it's all all about being sort of like in the house witnessing this with this main character um whose name it, coincidentally is laura laura um <laughs> I wrote a paper in which both of the main characters were named Laura. Um, that was very confusing for everyone involved. That's I amazing. Think. <laughs> but um, yeah, so Casa Muda is a really interesting um, movie. The this is still an article in progress. I'm still trying to work on this, but but I was uh, making sort of parallels between the the space of the ha- haunted house and the gothic heroine. Um, and and dictatorship and the way that women deal with authoritarian structures, um, which are both can be both dictatorship, sort of literal authoritarian structures and the authoritarianism of, of patriarchy, which um, often are blended very much the one, one of the just classic tactics of authoritarian regimes, which happened all over Latin America and, and elsewhere, is that um, citizenship becomes very feminized. 
um, then there's an idea that, that women start playing this particular role because all citizens become feminized. And so the language becomes very, like, very patriarchal, very macho, like a, we, the junta, are like extremely masculine and we are here to protect the country and root out the evil leftist um, who is simultaneously like, you know, extremely dangerous and, you know, has all sorts of guns and is going to kill you, but also like, like portrayed as homosexual or like, like in a deeply homophobic way or, or feminized in this, um, like they're not real men sort of way. Yeah. Schrodinger's leftist. Yes. Schrodinger's leftist is is both a uh, what's the current day terminology both a soy boy and anti. Oh, yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> a, a, a weak, a weak latte sipping soy boy, yeah. and also like an antifa super soldier who's, yes. who, who's coming to your house and it's going to take away your guns and your Bible. Yes, exactly. And so, and so Schrodinger's leftist is both these things, and and in response to that, the dictatorship dictatorships are often, you know, have this rhetoric, this, of, of patriarchy of, um, heavily sort of male dominated discourse. Um, and so there, end, there ends up being no room for like actual women in that discourse, um, which is sort of the case of all gendered discourse. There's these like event invented men, there's mm-hmm. these feminized, there's these macho men, there's these feminized men, and then women are just like, a some sort of like afterthought. Um, Usually they are bad. Sometimes they are the mothers of the, the patria and they're going to, um, you know, birth the next generation and they need to keep their their children from being soy boy Antifa leftists. But it really depends on the context. <laughs> <laughs> so the interesting thing about this, one of the many interesting things about this film is it's very much tied to... I don't want to spoiler alert it for anybody at the end. So, so cut off for the next like five minutes or so if, if you don't want to have it ruined for you. But, but, um, this is a, this is a, this is not a spoiler free podcast. We've made yeah. that, we have made that abundantly okay. clear. <laughs> I mean, for some of them, it's like at this point, if you haven't watched it, when are you um... going to watch it? This one, this one's still more recent, but it came out like a decade ago at this point. So, um, yeah. So, Casamuda. Uh, a, a woman, a young woman seems to be maybe in like her young 20s, goes with her father to a house in the countryside. It's really run down um, there. They meet up with the owner of the house and they are basically there to help him out. They're going to start clearing out the house, doing the yard work and stuff because he's going to sell it the next day. Um, always these haunted houses somehow really deeply t- attached to real estate. Right. So, oh, yeah. yeah. Right. Um, so he she um, is very quiet through the whole thing, doesn't speak a lot. They have come to this discussion. It's a very weirdly quiet film, actually. And then um, all of a sudden she hears noises in the house and her father disappears. Father turns up dead. Initiate scary, a scary house um, sequence where we're sort of very closely. The camera's following her around as she encounters um, these things in the house. And so she sees the ghost of a child who pops up. Um, and long story short, it turns out that this was a house where in her late teenagerhood or childhood, it's always like very unclear how old she was at this point. Cause she's very like childlike and, you know, carries like a floral backpack, that sort of thing. 
um, her father and the owner of the house abused her and the owner of the house um, actually impregnated her and they are, it's, it's left very ambiguous what happened, uh, but the baby is no longer there. Um, the, the idea being, I think, either that there was like a forced abortion or that her child was murdered by one of them um, to hide sort of the evidence of their abuse of her. So um, she is the one doing the murdering. Which makes the like timeline very complicated because we are we are as like the you know reliable narrator of the camera is watching her the in, uh, entire time, so there's no sort of time in which she could be doing the murdering, um, and so the the usually reliable narrator of the camera is unreliable in fact, um, which is is very fun. Um, there's there's a whole other element of photography and visuality that's that's very layered in there. Um, but my argument about this was essentially that the space of the house is extremely important. It's very imprisoning. Um, and it's, it's very, although a lot of these things are like, you know, never directly allegorical, they're like evocative rather, um, cause it can just be a simple horror movie. Um, I, in my interpretation, it's very evocative of, um, imprisonment and, and the Uruguayan dictatorship in particular had a lot of imprisoned people. Um, and one thing that was very common was imprisoned pregnant women whose, whose children would be, um, in Argentina, at least this was terrifyingly common, uh, whose children would, after, after they gave birth would be given to, um, military, uh, families to be raised as their own. So, so this movie is evoking, evoking a lot of that. Um, there's the abuse of patriarchy. There's the revenge of like the, the, she's both the final girl who, who lives through like this attack upon her by the house and by the ghosts, but is the person who is in fact doing the, the avenging um, and, and the murdering. She's, she's really just battling against this, this, this patriarchy that has robbed her of her own like sexuality, her own safe development, because she's both infantilized and made to be a mother. Um, and so at the end, she sort of like reunites with the ghost child, um, and, and walks off into the sunset with the ghost child and says to her, we're going to meet your grandmother, um, who the mother has been completely absent through the whole movie, not even mentioned. Um, so there's like this matriarchal reestablishment at the end of the film, uh, which I really, really love. So that was one of the, um, that's one of the, the articles in progress, right? Where I'm just exploring how um, she has particular elements of a gothic heroine and of a final girl, how she um, is really dealing with this like repressed trauma, which is also very typical in, in dictatorship related texts is, is like the, the trauma being not spoken about and has to be dealt with like a generation or a generation and a half later. There's a lot of, it's very common in sort of even like best-selling novels to have this sort of plot line where um, the person discovers that they are actually were not their parents' child. They were the child of disappeared people um, and that their parents, the people who raised them were military parents, who military um, officials who received like stolen babies. Um, so, so obviously, and, you know, I know we're going to talk about my work personally, um, the reproductive rights, uh, violations going on there are enormous. 
Um, yeah. and so that's in some, in some ways related to my, my organizing. Um, but you know, in general, thinking about the, the way that the right wing enacts, um, repression upon the bodies of women and, and tests it via, uh, the rob- that robbing them of their autonomy is frightening. <laughs> To say the least, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, this this movie sounds incredible. We're definitely going to have to have you on again at some point to to talk about the Silent House. <laughs> yeah, I think to, I think you both really like it. Yeah, it, it definitely it's, it sounds like my kind of movie. It sounds yeah, it sounds so good. I just did um, and it wasn't it made in like four days for for six thousand like, US. Yes. Yes. Yeah, six thousand US um in four days and, and that's one of the other things that I just deeply love about horror. It was like it became their submission to like the the best foreign film category to the Oscars and things like that, won huge international awards and acclaim, and then got this English language remake. Um horror is so amazing in the movie business in that it it can so easily like thwart those like ideas of what of what makes a good movie and, and oh. what a budget needs to be. Yeah, you can't you can't make a good action movie on just six K in four days. Yeah. Yeah. But it definitely it definitely sounds like 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 this is this is so in dialogue with the history of gothic horror. Like I'm just you know, not 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 to be that gothic studies guy, but this just throws me right back to the castle of Otranto. You know, man Manfred the crazed patriarch, you know, Mm -hmm. impressed impressed women trapped in literal labyrinths or occasionally figurative labyrinths. Mm-hmm, absolutely yeah and so that's why you know there's a lot of um i think light, like sort of spatial studies going on mm-hmm. right now that i'm very interested in um there's there's a few really great articles i've read that sort of looks at the La- south american landscape as the haunted house and you know where the ghosts of the disappeared or and all of these memories of past um horrors are are still floating about unreckoned with um that really pops up into a lot of the literature and film yeah there's that notion of the uh, for the gothic uh, of the kind of long dead history or really in this case not long dead but <laughs> his, his, history that has been kind of um sublimated has been kind of repressed making its its violent return because that's what happens that's what happens if you don't deal with a kind of um traumatic event i mean a lot mm-hmm. of that a lot of that kind of theoretically is tied up in stuff that derrida was writing about inspectors of marks which mm-hmm. which brings us back to the point that like no matter how hard you try and repress a kind of uh liberatory emancipatory politics the kind of struggle for freedom the ghost of communism will continue to haunt uh, these these bourgeois fucks. <laughs> <laughs> and the fascinating thing about that is that was viewed as essential for a return to liberal democracy too. Was the idea that these like sort of violent horrors need to be repressed that no yeah, one don't can be talk held accountable? It. Yeah. Yeah. Don't um, talk about it. It'll be fine. We'll just get back to normal. <laughs> and it was a state-sanctioned policy of of whitewashing, where um, you know they passed laws of amnesty, where they they that. That on the one hand, um, in in certain places, left like left wing guerrillas able to reincorporate into society, but on the other hand, were mostly used to excuse torturers and military officials who who did terrible things from ever facing any repercussions. And so, the past few decades have been a struggle to bring that back into the light by a lot of activists under like a human rights framework. And that's one of the yeah the fascinating things about the history is that. You know, most long dead history isn't isn't dead because it's been merely forgotten, but merely because it's been actively 
actively hidden and whitewashed. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. Our our history seems so so no, no longer long dead anymore. Everything seems like it happened just recently and yet so long ago. This sort of compression of time that we're experiencing in in 2019, where it feels like yeah. it's been going on forever. I, I think it's been 2019, literally for about a hundred years. Right. <laughs> and I, I think I think a large part of that is is deeply gothic in the sense that these things that we're experiencing and these things that we're going through are simultaneously in, incredibly new, like like the rise of, of figures like Bolsonaro and Trump, the the shredding of American reproductive rights are, are contemporary or contemporaneously new, but they're deeply tied back into these hundreds of years old histories of oppression. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's this, it's this trans historic Gothic dialogue that we're like imprisoned in because we <laughs> keep shirking the responsibility of like these active leftist maneuvers that would just get rid of this and actually resolve these struggles. Right. Yeah. And that's what Derrida was talking about was his argument was was deeply ethical in yeah. that, mm -hmm. you know, what must we do with the ghosts of the past? We have to sit with yes. them. Yeah, oh, I don't Derrida's I don't so good. I don't want to go off on a tangent here, but this is one of the reasons why I'm so deeply concerned about Joe Biden. Because because <laughs> Joe Biden, Joe Biden is yes. running for president on this kind of platform of like, you remember me? Let's go back to normal. It'll I'm the guy fine. with the aviators. We'll just, we'll, you know what? We'll just forget it. We'll just forget the last four years and it'll be fine. And it's going to be like, no, you had, you've got like, you've got like armed fascists <laughs> on the border who are just going to now get to pretend to be normal people. You've got mm -hmm. like I ICE agents who should be in jail for the rest of their yeah. lives and unable to go out in public without people like following them, chanting shame down the street, who are just mm -hmm. going to be like, I was just in law enforcement. It was fine. Like the pres like we've got Joe Biden as president now. You've seen those memes. It's fine. Let's not talk about it. And so like do you think there's a possibility that in you know if if that happens, if there's this kind of continued inability to reckon with the kind of traumatic oppressive present that we're going to see that manifest in gothic in the future. Oh deeply, yeah. I mean even I don't know. I, I obviously I'm a skeptic of that even being able to happen at this point. I think I think we take lots of masks off and we try to put them back on and they don't fit so well afterwards. Yeah, um, definitely. there's there's been a real exposure over the past few years of, you know, people saying the quiet part loud. Yeah. Um, and to think so naively that we could go back, you know, th that Joe Biden thinks we could go back to those good old days when we bipartisanly did terrible things that just weren't too noticeably terrible, um, I think is is very unlikely. Uh, it's hard. It's hard to disarm the fascists afterwards. They have to at a certain point. Like the reaction has to be so severe that they then are defending themselves to try and you know they're they're in favor of the forgetting as a protective maneuver. And at yeah. this point, they're winning. I I don't think that they're at the point where they're saying like you know, widespread, the condemnation of ICE is, is big enough that people would say, oh, you worked for ICE? Uh, yeah, I'm going to have to run you out of my neighborhood, um, <laughs> which is 
which is ultimately, and that's actually what they literally had to do in some ways. Um, yeah. You know, decades after uh, the dictatorships were were over, there was young people who were children of disappe- disappeared political dissidents who would would hold popular movements to identify and alert neighbors to the fact that they were living on the street, same street as a torturer. That is public service. Yes, it deeply like, is. <laughs> that is public service. I, 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 I can only hope that it will get to the point where that is uh, something like that is happening in the United States. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and to kind of use this as a jumping off point to, to get into something a little bit more expressly Marxist, for for people like Joe Biden, it is entirely possible to return things back to normal because Joe, Joe Biden's class position mm-hmm. is just Trump with the mask back on. Right. You know, he, he, he gave a touching eulogy to Strom Thurmond, Strom, you know, Thurmond. <laughs> Strom Thurmond, you know, and like and um, John McCain, you know, and he's he's he, he's he's like the poster boy of like all of these right wing war criminals and architects of, of Jim Crow are, are really good people and good friends. And we may have disagreed on things, but, you know, they're buddies. At the end of the day, we went to barbecues. Mm-hmm. You know, so so Joe Joe Biden's wealth and and his gen- general power has so separated him from the rest of people that, like, you know, we're not very far from what his normal was to begin with. Yeah, and that's what happened. You know, in, in a post dictatorship era, the liberal in a liberal democracy, the the political class shakes hands and agrees to go back to normal, and then they have to just convince. The rest of us, you know, the everyday, the everyday citizens, or or the the very deep cut leftists, that that is the best thing for everyone. And often, how they do that is via threat, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I anticipate, and it's like an, it's like an, you know, not a direct threat, but like you don't want the military to take over again, do you? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what we're seeing with Joe Biden. It's sort of like, you don't want Trump to win again, do you? Yeah. Like that's the, or or the sort of like um, the threat of the the like right wing, you know, they love to talk about how like, oh, you know, if, if Trump doesn't win, we're going to do this, this and this. Or if we find out that there was some sort of election thing that happened, we're going to do this, this and this. Like, yeah, yeah. like how he threatened to not recognize possibly the the results of the election if he didn't win the first time around that that's Mm -hmm. just deeply what that is 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 a um slightly subtle threat barely subtle threat to to try and get people to agree with how the political status quo has always been yeah um, and not shake the boat too much right absolutely wasn't it david from who wrote that article about how liberals needed to start being doing a fascism at the border <laughs> with other, otherwise the right would and like oh you're gonna have to and it's like that that's how you establish that's how you establish a political consensus with that kind of passive aggressive um threats of yeah, yeah, precisely. Guys, I, do, oh, also, I, I don't want to do this but you guys you know you're being so unreasonable i'm just going to have to be an apologist for fascism now <laughs> yeah we, we also have that um dialogue that's emerging we're like oh well we need Biden to run because all these other crazy left candidates are going to get painted as socialists and, and they're never going to red scare, red scare. And like, you know, Fox news just ran a piece about how Biden isn't the Biden we used to love. He's now an extremist socialist, Joe Biden. (laughs) And like, no no matter who the Democrats run they're the, like the Fox news propaganda arm is going to smear them as being further left than Stalin. So, so it doesn't matter. It doesn't like yeah. it, you're never going to get them. You're never going to get them to to go. 
ah, he's they're the reasonable one. Yeah. You know, you, you don't you don't win by pretending this never happened. You 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 the only way there can be a kind of I mean, basically this comes back down to class struggle, right? You don't win by agreeing with your oppressor. Really? Like, <laughs> you you win by winning. <laughs> no, it's really true. And this happens, God, this happens all the time in sort of like femin- feminist argument. They're like, yes. uh, you, God, what was that? Some article came out recently and it was sort of like, my, my son became a Nazi on the internet because one girl said that he was harassing her and she, yep. he wasn't. And I'm like, okay, first of all, lady, there's a lot of... Go- <laughs> There's a lot going on there that <laughs> I'm deeply sure you have not mentioned. Okay, sure. She right. she she's claimed that this that this kid was harassing her and he's the huge victim here. I, I bet. Um but mm-hmm. even then they say sort of like, oh, it's because this has the feminism has been allowed to run rampant or like um you know, men's rights activists all the time sort of act Ugh. like like a woman was mean to them one time or like they had a difficult relationship with their mother. And that's what turned them into like a right wing, like misogynist Nazi who plows over people um, with their yeah. car. Like, <laughs> yeah, and, and, and that, and that like their one bad, you know, interaction with with a woman is constitutive of systematic oppression somehow. Yeah, per, yeah, exactly. And so that's I, you can't take an argument being made by yeah your oppressor or the right wing in in good faith you can you can think and and try to identify what people's real material problems are that that are contributing to that but like i can't i'm not here to babysit some dude that hates women (laughs) straight up 100 (laughs) percent So you had you had mentioned um, before we started recording uh, when we were, when we were chatting in the DMs that um, part of your work is uh, to to connect the more uh, feminist aspects of psychoanalytic horror criticism with materialism and Marxism specifically, and that sounds like that sounds like a big gap to jump. And I'm wondering I'm wondering how you approach that and what are your goals with this project and like I guess um maybe specific theories and theorists you're working with on this effort. Yeah, yeah. So there's a couple of Cynthia Freeland is actually the person who wrote sort of like the call to make feminist film criticism more historically based. Um, because so much, you know, I love being like, yes, like this, you know, alien is about motherhood and reproduction. And this is a womb. The spaceship is the womb sort of, that's shit fun. That's just fun. Um, (laughs) and I won't knock it. Right. Like it's, it's cool to do that. And you can, and that's got a certain, like you can dig in on that you can get a lot of meat out of that barbara creed has been really incredible in some of the feminist horror film criticism um you know the the um uh who is it clover what's the first name carol um, clover yes there you go um carol clover with with the final girl a lot of that is is psychoanalytic based um and and that's what a lot of feminists uh, you know there's there's a very strong feminist psychoanalytic tradition um and and in film criticism, there's there's tons of it. Um, but at a certain point, like you do have a tendency to hit a wall with that. And and Cynthia Freeland identifies this as sort of like the wall you hit when like every single thing, like everything becomes the male gaze. Like like it becomes impossible for women to enjoy a horror movie because it's just like 
you know, us getting murdered all the time. Um, and, and it's impossible to have any, you know, not that every single film ever made has to be empowering, uh, but not every film does, has to be patriarchal and repressive. There are ways to watch and read it and enjoy it that, that I think, you know, sort of an emphasis on the viewer experience of it can show that it's not always being read that way. Uh, so when we watch something and, and we're watching like, you know, woman after woman get murdered and murdered and murdered, you have to ask a lot of times, like, where are our sympathies? Um, mm-hmm. is this, you know, when is this an acting out of like a patriarchal hatred of women? And when is it actually, you know, we are sympathizing with these characters. We don't want them to die. And we are, are seeing ourselves in them or seeing ourselves in the monster, perhaps, you know, just sort of like a call to be putting a little bit more nuance on there. And so because a lot of the, the films that I, a lot of the works that I look at are very historically contingent. Uh, many of them are allegorical and I, I and, and speaking to a particular, a particular moment in time, um, so it's a lot of a lot of discussion of dictatorship tends to be allegorical. It's it's very like, you know, this this like like in some ways like too transparent, right? You're like, oh, okay, yeah, you know, the ghost is a disappeared person, sort of thing. Um, but but I want to bring in more of a materialist analysis, more of looking at um a class dynamic and and the way power is construed um not in like sort of like a psychological power way but like a very like material relationship to power um in some of these in some of these works and so one of the the ways that i tried to do that is for example like um I did a reading of, oh, well, I'll actually just, just use La Casa Muda since we just, we just talked about it. Um, one of the ways that the haunted house is, is very interesting is, it is, it's very enclosed, obviously, and there's sort of parts of the house that are, um, like, uh, they've got, like, plastic sheeting up and things like that for, like, like under construction sort of thing. So, so she walks through, and it's, like, this very sort of, like, aqueous-looking environment, and she's exploring into the depths of, again, this sort of labyrinth um, where she then finds sort of the origin, the truth of what happened to her, the repressed memory. And part of that truth is deeply connected to her pregnancy, obviously. Easy as hell to read that as a uterus, obviously. And you can and you should sort of be like, uterus, <laughs> psychoanalytic film. Um, you, and, and looking at the way that her individual experience of this repressed memory impacted her obviously and how patriarchy had these very intimate uh, effects upon her body and mind as an individual um so that's all absolutely valid absolutely important but you can also expand that and you can look at it both as uterus and prison cell which is the the reading i ultimately was moving towards because you know there's evidence for it is this sort of thing um she was tied down to the bed and in some of the things and like that it's like a windowless room and, and all sorts of stuff um but but pairing those two readings is really powerful because you've got this historically contingent thing in which uh, the prison cell evokes the idea of, of dictatorship and and imprisonment for political reasons and the the more maternal storyline and the idea of the uterus and and the truth being there at the uterus evokes very clearly the difficult the 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 tragedy and the and the violation of the stolen child or the murdered child uh which is 
is a, is what happened with a lot of w- women political prisoners um, who were were pregnant at the time. Um, you know, not to mention that that rape was a, a tool of of torture that was that was used against both women and men. Um, but so so you can start to see more layers there by moving a little bit beyond this individual psychoanalytic reading that's talking about either in an individual psychology or even the human condition uh, and start moving it into a more historically contingent thing where there's really layers of the trauma and the affect that are psychological, but then also cultural and really related to this broader historical moment and the way that political power is patriarchal power and the right wing utilized this patriarchal power in, in a way that that violated not just individual women, but women everywhere, uh, huge numbers of political prisoners um, and, and anybody who was sort of present to, for experiencing that cultural trauma. That is a fantastic reading. And we are we are definitely 100 <laughs> percent here for the the intersection connection of like uh, feminist interpretations and class. Yeah. And I'm, I'm always, you know, just thinking, cause, cause again, it is, it's expressions of power that are sometimes discursive. They're sometimes in the, in the way that the regimes talk. Mm. Um, and, and they're, they're sometimes very direct, they're material effects upon the body. And I think that's, that's one thing that feminist film criticism is very good at is looking at the body and trauma and affect directly. Um, but then, we also need to to remember to bring that out to the wider political context, and that's how political power is enacted is is upon d- individual bodies and the social body. I think absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I think that's I think that's a really compelling, that's really interesting and compelling reading, and I think you have kind of articulated something really important in that move from the kind of individualized nature of psychoanalytic criticism to a discursive materialist uh, analysis of of power relations um so uh, which which really ties into the kind of overall idea of a, of a of a gothicized marxism so maybe maybe you could talk a little bit about how you think horror specifically ties into that that relationship between the psychoanalytic and the and the materialist feminism that you were talking about yeah, I think, you know, horror is compelling because it is experienced so personally, right? Your, you know, fear is like, it's both a universal concept and a deeply individualistic one. We'll always feel fear differently. There's no sort of, you know, if I watch a movie and I find it super scary, there's sort of like no, no, nothing about that that guarantees it's going to be scary for somebody else because we all experience this so differently and it's, and it's deeply rooted in, in the body. That affect is so, so interesting to me. But then it's also deeply cultural, right? We have sort of broader cultural fears. We have things that people might say universal, and I, I prefer to say cultural because I think that um, it, it is more culturally rooted. Uh, but the things that, that terrify us, so we... Gosh, did I, I think it might've been you all talking about a paranormal, paranormal activity and like the, um, huge like popularity of that related to the, the recession and the mortgage crisis. Uh, yeah, that was, that was one of mine. <laughs> that sounds like you, right? Um, 
Yeah, I remember. I rem- yeah, and and it's so you know that's really so striking because it's both so individualistic. You know, the idea of you losing your house or you being trapped in there with this sort of like terrible existential threat that you cannot understand. When we're watching a film like that, that's what we're experiencing individually. But then it's also speaking much greater to this huge cultural crisis, right? That not just you, but everyone experiencing. So this is something that had such a huge impact on us on us now. Um, you know, over over a decade later, at this point, there's we're still seeing the repercussions. Um, and, and, you know, even people who weren't directly affected by it, you know, my family was, was lucky enough not to be impacted by that at all. And still, I deeply feel it because of the, the huge, like, domino effect it had on everyone's lives. So now, you know, years later, I'm an adult and nobody can afford to have a house and our rents are skyrocketing and everyone's terrified of the idea that something like this could happen to them again of, of something very solid being pulled out from under them. Um, and that's the, that's the cultural fear in some ways that that horror speaks to. Right. So, so a lot of what I want to do with horror and one of the reasons it's so compelling to me is because it shows ways that those fears are played out and are both individual and and have to do with our own psychology and vary from person to person, but also are are very much shared between people. Um, And, but also that it shows the way that power is enacted a lot. I think, I think horror is a privileged medium um, for exploring questions of power and the way that the sinister and fear is used to have power over us. Um, you know, I think a lot still, you know, on the real estate kick, I think a lot about how those sorts of things or other, other, like the necessities, the, the stuff that we need, food, water, shelter. Um, one of the reasons as socialists or communists, we want to do decommodify those is because it shores up worker power, giving them more power over, over the capitalist class and their bosses. And so every time we're like, uh, yeah, we should have national national health insurance. One of those reasons is because then that's one less thing that workers are desperately begging for when they go to negotiate. Um, and they get more power that way than, and the boss has less power over them. So um, I think that those material needs and, and our fears for not having those material needs, which is, which is ultimately what fear sort of boils down to is, is the idea that your needs will be deprived and that you will be threatened and that you will die. Um, That fear that we see just exaggerated in horror and told like that horror also says the quiet part loud, right? Right. So it can heighten the contradictions a little bit, I think. Um, I don't know where I was going with that. I just, (laughs) I just talked myself into a whole corner getting so excited by this idea. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, that's 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 totally okay. That's that's, that's that is what a podcast method. is here for. Yeah, that's, yeah. My, that's my research <laughs> method. But what you, to to kind of pick up on what you were saying, one thing that I wanted to sort of tease out of that is if if in two thousand eight and two thousand nine we see the kind of fear of the end of the credit economy, right, where the where the cheap mortgages suddenly gets called in, and you are you are dispossessed in both a kind of immaterial way and in a deeply material way. Now, I actually think we're seeing the kind of rise of the debt of, of, of a, uh, a debt economy, where instead of, instead of kind of the cheap credit, you have debt and everything is on kind of lease, 
you know, we don't, we don't own, we don't own anything, anything. anything. <laughs> we don't own anything anymore. Everything is paid for like, uh, as like multiple purchases over the lifetime of a single product. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if, if anything, that's heightening the contradictions even further because eventually you can't have mass production of commodities uh, with people who, with a general populace that can't afford to actually buy them. So I think this struggle of decommodifying, of demanding the kind of uh, necessities of life, of of housing, of healthcare, of food, of of safety, as as things which are external to kind of capitalist logic is a really vital political struggle. Absolutely. And and to think, you know, even movies that aren't explicitly horror films become horrifying in those sorts of moments. Like I'm I'm thinking of the end of Sorry to Bothered You, um, which points deeply to this, the exact same thing you were saying, the debt economy where we own nothing, including ourselves. We just become these like workhorses out for rent to to the capitalist class, which is, you know, in a way what we have always been. But but the the exaggeration, the direct, deliberate, abject horror of seeing that that cloned horse monster come out um, is where we we start to feel the horror of our own situation because we're looking at it in another and in, in just like a slightly altered version. Right. Mm. It's and that is in some ways uncanny. That's why I think the uncanny can be both a psychological, a psychoanalytic and political concept. Um, we look at it and we see this, this familiar thing, this person who is working for nothing just to, just to try and exist at all and, and completely underwater, even able to do in trying to do that. And to then have the very last thing they have, their own existence, their own personality, who they are as their own humanity, then robbed, um, I think is, is so powerful because it is the, the ultimate fear that we all have. And that is an uncanny thing where you look at yourself and see yourself in that horse. Or at least I did. I feel like maybe it, it was a little bit too much for some people. They were like, where the fuck did that horse come from? <laughs> I, 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 for one, loved that twist. And to, and to bring to, to bring our boy Derrida back into this, you know, it's it's the it's the law of genre. Things do not belong. They participate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I fully I fully accept. Sorry to bother you as as a horror film in addition uh, to sci-fi. Boots Riley going horror vanguard. <laughs> oh yeah, please. Uh, if any if anyone out there knows knows uh, uh, Mr. Riley uh, Boots, sir, please come on our show, comrade. Please, comrade. Comrade Boots. <laughs> yep. But I think this uh, I think this is a really good uh, jumping off point because we're talking a lot about the, these material conditions and these very real fears that people have. And you, uh, you, Laura, are just coming off the heels of a rather successful reproductive rights fundraiser. And I was wondering if you, you could did, talk about... You did okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, it it seems so. And I was wondering if you could talk about, talk about the process, what it was like to organize, and how you connect this back into the gothic and horror, if you do at all. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, I, I love that provocation is to like be able to be start thinking about it's, it's like being in therapy. Right. And how do you think this all connects? Because in some ways I had been when I was coming onto the show, like I was like, oh, do I really is this have anything to do with what I do in my my day job, so to speak sort of thing? Or am I just getting a break from my day job? But it actually deeply does. Um, and that goes back again to the sort of psycho psychological, but also material fear of, of maternity, um, in some ways, um, you know, not like this sort of like abject motherhood, the, the bad mother that is, is the prevalent idea in horror criticism, but, you know, without having a fear of being the bad mother, being, be having the fear of being like the dead mother, 
um, I think yeah. is now deeply like coming back to haunt us. Our, our maternal mortality rates in the United States, especially for, for black women in, in the South, particularly mm. are, are atrocious. Yeah. They're, they're shameful. It's, it's, it's honestly shocking. And it's one of those things where like, it also shows you like the, the world is not one of like continual progress. Like the capitalists have promised us there oh, is yeah. like, you know, we're going deeply like backwards, but you know, there is no backwards. It just is, is worse. Um, I'll go back to what the project actually was to explain. Yeah. Yeah. I think that would be a really good, good place to start, you know, for, for yeah. our listeners who maybe weren't aware, like what, what was this fundraiser? What did you do? Who was it for? Yeah, so I'm with my work in DSA. I, I do some national work um, with our socialist feminist working group, and I also do do local work with the socialist feminist working group. We've been participating in a Bolathon fundraiser for the National Network of Abortion Funds for for several years now, um, as as individual chapters, and then sort of doing some national coordination for at least the past three years since we got our big membership bump. Um, so this year was the first year I did. Uh, helping coordinate it, it nationally. And, and actually the very lucky thing is, is so much of the work is done for you by the really wonderful people at NNAF um, who are, are basically a network of local abortion funds who are just supremely radical people. Um, you know, it's, it's, they're always funds that are mostly, they're mostly led by women or, or non-binary people of color in my experience. Um, they have just, just such a, uh, an unapologetic view of the connection of abortion to reproductive justice and what abortion should be as a part of our health care. Um, they're really influential in just no longer like doing this like safe, legal, rare thing that like the Democrats espouse, which has been yeah. just just an excuse to like further chip away and chip away and chip away at it. Mm -hmm. um, until it's no longer safe and now barely legal and will always remain the exact same amount probably because, because there's no interest in actually reducing pregnancies. It's just in, you know, forcing women to carry them to term, um, women and, and people who don't identify as women. Um, so, uh, the abortion funds just pay for you if you need an abortion. They're not means-tested programs. They they answer people in need. They deal with them one-on-one. -on -one. They help them get money for things like the procedure, but also traveling to other states because um, there are our clinic, our states that have no or only one clinic yeah. in them. Um, there are states that have waiting laws that make you have an appointment and then wait for 48 hours and then go back um, mm -hmm. because they want you to think about it a little bit more. Uh, I know. There's, you know, there's places where they they have to tell you medical information that's actually inaccurate. It's like prescribed by yeah. the state, not by a doctor. Um, they force you to look at an ultrasound, like they won't let you have it without looking directly at the ultrasound or something like that. And not not to mention all those crisis pregnancy centers in quotes. <laughs> yep, and those are places for shit people doing shit things. Um, mm -hmm. The crisis pregnancy centers are basically their anti-choice um, centers that will, that get you in with the offer of like a free ultrasound or they, they try to look like women's clinics and in fact will mm -hmm. like just build their facilities next door to women's uh, to, to abortion clinics. Um, and then their, their major goal is to like, like 
they'll like straight up lie and say you're further along than yeah. than you actually are to try and keep you from going to get an abortion. They'll they're very terrible people. Yeah, um, yeah I used to I used to be a clinic escort, and we had a, one of those oh, fake awesome. crisis uh, pregnancy centers across the street. And, yep. and they had they had doctors in quotes, and their doctors weren't doctors at all. It's just they they were just anti choice people who yeah. were down to lie. And they would they would actively say things like, "Oh, it's medically unsafe for you to get any kind of abortion." Yep. And it's just atrocious. Yeah, and so it's it's really just meant to trick people and 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 lie to them so that they won't won't get it. Um, you know, they really don't care. That's the thing they sort of like try and frame it like we're we're helping women we're giving them an unbiased choice uh we're making sure they know all their options they'll like say that sort of thing on their websites and stuff like that but but in reality they'll they'll straight up lie to you in order to get you to do what they want because their their ultimate goal is to get you to not have an abortion not Mm -hmm. to make sure you're having a safe healthy life um yeah so so for all of those reasons getting an abortion in the united states uh though technically illegal, can be extremely difficult um, and extremely fraught and very expensive. Um, so uh, local abortion funds pay for that. They pay if you have to travel out of state and, and come. You know, Chicago is sort of like a hub in, in the Midwest. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of people end up traveling to Chicago if they need a procedure. Some states like don't have – there's not enough doctors um, at all who, will, who, can, who are qualified to do abortions, especially later-term ones. Uh, which people often need for, you know, if they want one, but also for medical reasons um, or because a crisis pregnancy center lied to you um, (laughs) to get you to wait for a couple of months. Um, And so they, they do that. They provide the, the, the material support and also like the just one-on-one support, the advice uh, to the, the, to help people get the healthcare that they need. Um, and so we raise money for them. This is their national fundraiser. They, they try to raise money. They raise money every year. It's called a bowlathon because they like have local bowling events. Um, <laughs> but also because one of the things I like about it is it makes anti-choicers so mad. They get really, they're like, look yeah. at these people. They're doing something as frivolous as bowling about abortion. <laughs> and it just makes them so pissed off. And it's, and it's nice. That's amazing. It changes that narrative. It's like, okay, yeah. yeah, yeah, we are frivolous because you don't have to like earn your abortion by being appropriately right. grief stricken, right? Yes, 100%. Totally. <laughs> uh, so, so that's really important. They're a radical group of people. They work with a lot of other really radical reproductive uh, rights groups. And so DSA raises nationally. Um, the This year, we we last year we had 26 teams and we raised $91,000. Nice. This year, we we just got an explosion. I think we had over 75 teams. Wow. Um, people, yeah, people were awesome. They were really ready to get involved. And the other thing is it's like you, you don't – there's no like – you don't have to like raise like – a crazy amount or anything you can just commit to like a couple of hundred dollars you just get a couple people together you ask your network um you know there's more stuff you can do holding events and and whatever and we've got like tips that we try to help coordinate trainings for people of how to fundraise and that and that sort of thing how to reach out to your networks and Mm -hmm. and dsa people how to even talk to people about abortion access which is hard we had some really really yeah and it's also like a learning experience for that reason we had some some men in particular who were like i don't know how to do this like how do yeah, i totally. as as a cis man 
go out and talk to my friends and say, I'm, I'm raising money for abortion access. And we're like, first of all, be like, I'm awesome because I'm, I'm raising that because <laughs> women, yeah, cis women and trans men and, and non-binary people and, and trans women can't do it on their own. We need just like cis men yeah. to help. Um, and so, right. And so a lot of people are like, it's not my place. I'm like, it's totally your place. absolutely is like like definitely benefit from abortions pretty consistently here you get you're involved a lot of the time uh Uh, yeah you know on on occasion yeah yeah cisgender definitely party to a pregnancy yeah (laughs) yeah and so uh so that's also just a cool thing to do for like training purposes you know getting people more comfortable with doing that um it's a challenge a lot you have to confront family sometimes you know Mm -hmm. i know for whatever oh, yeah. reason, there's a lot of like former or or even current Catholics in our in our group of social time organizers. Yeah. Um, it's and, and and like that's a hard conversation to have, right? Oh, yeah. um, with with your parents or with your extended family, but but people are learning how to do it, and you can't not have hard conversations if you're a socialist. You know, we're trying to dismantle <laughs> capitalism. That is um, one, one of the big things that we do is have really difficult conversations with literally everybody. Literally, yes. we are annoying at parties. Uh, when, we're, when, we're not, so, when we're not ruining horror movies. When we're not ruining your favorite films, we are annoying you at parties. So that that's also like one of the cool things is to be able to do that. So this year, yeah, over 75 teams. We are across the country, really cool people doing cool work. And we raised over $130,000. That is so amazing. Cool. Wow. Congratulations. It was really great. And that's out of like $2 million that they raised nationwide. So it's like wow. a big dent. I'm like, I'm proud of yeah. that. We, we made a big dent. We helped you all out a lot. Um, but also, obviously, you know, they are, are just the organization organization that that does the most um and and brings people together on this and is making like those those conversations happen which is also a part of the organizing right it's not just like the material impact but the the one-on-one connections and the normalizing of this abortion discourse that's that's going to help us win win this fight ultimately um so it's hard it's a hard one but also yeah you know connecting it to what we've been we've been talking about i you know, pregnancy is actually really scary. And we talk yeah. about that. There are a lot of horror movies talk about that in like, even feminist film criticism, I actually think has a male gaze sometimes. Um, because they talk about the way like these male directors per- portray maternity and pregnancy as so terrifying. But when mm. I look at maternity and pregnancy, I find it very terrifying. <laughs> I, I don't think that's internalized misogyny. Like I think part of it is like, we have this cultural like this actually sort of like condescending discourse that's like pregnancy is beautiful all all women are meant to go through it and i say you know women particularly because that's what people say um Mm -hmm. uh they they erase other gender identities in that um like oh it's so easy for you to do this this and that no it's hard it's work it's reproductive labor it Mm -hmm. is growing another human being inside of you and dramatically like even some of the things like i'm a grown-ass adult and every time i like hop onto a twitter thread about this sort of thing i am learning new terrible things that pregnancy (laughs) does to your body (laughs) and that doesn't mean like don't go through it like that Mm -hmm. but but every single person who chooses to go through that is making a heroic choice and and often at like a great personal and physical sacrifice um and so that's part of what like the 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 thing that like 
is so terrible about forced maternity is is that choice isn't just like this part of rhetoric it's that you are are willingly undergoing something that is active difficult grueling work for your body not to mention motherhood before we get to the motherhood part <laughs> um, which is also extremely valuable, important reproductive labor that that is often done at great personal sacrifice for people. Um, yeah. But like if you're doing that without a choice, that's where the horror comes in. Right. So you can have all these like very honestly un- unhappy things happen to your body. But when you are choosing to do that because you are trying to bring a, a, a human into the world, like there's no horror in that. That for you is 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 a good experience. It's whatever experience you you want to be able to make it right that you've chosen to make it. Um, but when you're forced to do this against against your will, you know that's that's the difference between, uh, you know, like I'm trying to think of an appropriate metaphor, and I cannot think of an appropriate. I'm like I'm like trying to go with a sports metaphor. I'm like I don't know where my head is on that. That that is absolutely okay. We are we are a safe place for terrible metaphors. For terrible me- yeah. Yeah, but 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 you know, it is like the active difference between, you know, like like doing something when you want to do it and you've made that choice to do it and doing something when you do not and the state is forcing you yeah. uh, and a patriarchal state as that is like obviously very different experiences and to say that it's it's not and and to say like there's this whole discourse like feminists hate maternity and they hate mothers and it's because they hate babies and blah 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 i'm like no i do not feel that way i just do not want to be forced to experience that against my will and i think that should be oh now we'll go with a bdsm metaphor instead there we go nice choice right supported (laughs) if somebody is like like you know walloping you while you have asked them to do that that's one thing and you must be and you're enjoying that we assume but if somebody else is is hitting you when you do not want them to do that it doesn't matter if in one occasion you enjoyed them doing that there's obviously a revocal of consent there i'm gonna go with that metaphor yeah Yeah, that is is a fully supported metaphor (laughs) yeah um so yeah, and, and you know, I mean, anti-choicers are are in some ways deliberate about eliding that difference between the experiences. Um, they want to make it sound like we just like hate, like we're against pregnancy or something like that, and we want to like I don't know, we also want to murder men or something like that, and, <laughs> and they're not and, and reproduce by budding or something. But but in in reality, it's really actually valuing the the. The fact that this is difficult, hard work, and can be horrifying and abusive if you are forced to undergo yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so Sylvia Federici, right here, okay, counterpoint <laughs> in the kitchen, Caliban and the witch. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, so, so there's a lot of that going on, and then just like the, you know, to think of of somebody in in this goddamn day and age of us having such terrible maternal health rates uh, uh, and and death rates, right? that's horrifying that's that's something that we should be deeply scared of um and and motherhood can be that way as well i think of actually the babadook and how 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 terrifying motherhood is in that movie um and part of it is because of you know like a trauma and and feeling forced into something and alone obviously and i think that that's also very relevant for for like our our discussions about reproductive justice how how that terror can can feel so visceral even when it's not the experience that you're going through 
I think I think you've connected the um, those themes of uh, imprisonment of confining people to a kind of domestic sphere as well mm-hmm. that you were talking about earlier to this really really clearly and I think that's another great way of highlighting this um, way of understanding horror as something that can be you know in, incredibly intimate and personal and bodily uh, altering even but mm-hmm. it's also something that is materially instantiated it is discursively maintained it is in 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 so many restrictive and and authoritarian ways legally prescribed onto people um so once again you kind of see that confluence of uh these kind of immaterial discourses and you know the 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 material discourses of, of of a struggle for freedom yeah absolutely and and the interesting interesting terrifying other adjectives um thing about that is that these this right-wing authoritarianism it's acted upon the bodies of of women or what they assign to be women first Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. like this is not something that stops this is not like a disregard for bodily autonomy that stops at at regulating you know women's bodies it it expands to all sorts of bodies and and it starts with anything like perceived to be deviant which is which is one of the reasons that that feminist struggles and anti-racist struggles and and uh queer liberation struggles are are all intertwined but it moves Mm -hmm. on to to anything that is in any way not part of the authoritarian program and that includes any leftist political discourse so so anyone who thinks that we can be fighting sort of like the class struggle and and not engaging in these sorts of things is is up for sort of like a rude awakening because they also throw the leftists in jail even if you're like a white cis one right yeah one 100 percent you know we cannot we cannot disregard this political struggle for for the sake of some like heavily misogynistic and heavily racist um kind of like metaphorization of quote-unquote class Mm -hmm. exactly yeah yeah this 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 nonsense of of uh class first this class reductionist just bullshit is is predicated upon a complete ideological lie of of who working class people are totally Mm -hmm. Uh, and it is it's it's not materialist it isn't it isn't historical it isn't historical materialism it's absolutely this, not it's, yeah. it's 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 it makes me it makes me so mad because these struggles which are so which is so central to any kind of universal liberation of of working class people uh is so vital for what's happening now you know like the material struggle exists you know bodily now here uh, mm-hmm. so we we uh, are in complete solidarity uh with uh, all of the work that you've been doing and you've explained it uh, in such a kind of uh clear and and precise way that i think is i, I hope people are going to get a lot out of listening to this oh thank you so much i hope so too <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Let's um, let, let's do two quick uh, closing questions if you both have time, and then we'll for wrap sure. this up. Excellent. Uh, so, so the first one related to your uh, political work for our listeners who 
um, are maybe feeling inspired right now and want to uh, get 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 out there and and get on the ground and do some work for reproductive rights. Um, I was wondering if you could you know give some tips, maybe name some organizations that that are in need of bodies, and you know it would be good for people to reach out to. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, honestly, the National Network of Abortion Funds is is just a great resource to start with. Um, mm-hmm. Identifying where your local abortion fund is and what kind of work they might they might need. Um, obviously, always they love money, um, and that's really been been lucky in the past couple of weeks because in the wake of these terrible bans, um, people have been coming yeah. through with that. Uh, but also, they need they need bodies. So if you're sort of thinking um, like I want to be the person there who's picking people up from the airport so they can go to their procedures like that's the sort of like they need that sort of volunteer they need people to staff Mm -hmm. helplines that sort of thing um and so if you can find someone there narrow also has several chapters available and they're doing that kind of work if you want to do more of like a legal or canvassing focus as well or research um I always advocate for people to to talk think about clinic escorting uh it, it gives you yeah it gives you a huge it 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 teaches you so much. It gets you, oh, you yeah. see the things on the ground, but also like, um, you know, teaches you what sort of rhetoric is being used and, and what they want out of you. Right. And, and also very valuable de-escalation and, and being able to mm. not engage with people, which is honestly a skill that, that people don't have enough is, you know, picking the time and the place to engage and things like that. Yeah. Um, Oh, I had one more. Oh, um, there's there's a nationwide campaign that DSA is trying to start to get more involved in. We've got a couple of chapters who have been very involved in this so far. And here in Chicago, I'm I'm trying to work um, on developing a campaign called Expose Fake Clinics. So Expose Fake Clinics nice. is a nationwide campaign that we're, we're plugging into. And that's anti-crisis pregnancy center work. It's focusing on doing things like identifying where those crisis pregnancy centers are, the funders, making sure people locally know, uh, making it so they don't get taxpayer funding because they do receive taxpayer funding in some states or municipalities. Um, Lots of work to do there because they're terrible. And and there's more crisis pregnancy centers in the United States than actual abortion clinics. Um, Fuck those places. fuck those places and really good also it's the sort of thing where like you go and like look into their finances and you like get so mad like one of the, the one of the fucking owners of the chicago bears is like this anti-choice yeah. asshole who funds like a bunch of these crisis pregnancy centers and stuff so so it gives you i think it's always good to put names and, and faces on the people that you want to you know, be, be cursing in your, in your daily occult rituals. <laughs> oh, oh yeah. Yeah. I, I was going to say we 100% believe in and support the Gothic occult power of, of pinning your, your enemy down with a name. Uh, we so, will, we will put, uh, we'll put links in the show notes to, um, yes. to these places that you've recommended. And we'll make sure that people, uh, encourage people to do check them out, to donate, to volunteer if you can, uh, and to get involved in this, in this incredibly important, uh, political struggle. Thanks so much. Yeah. And just, uh, just as a final, final to end, end things, end things on, on a continuation of this upper, we, we, you know, people getting involved, uh, what, what are your, what are some of your favorite Gothic texts? Who, who, who's your, who's your goth squad? Who you got on your yeah, team? My goth squad. Um, so yeah, so, you know, I'm reading some specters of Marx right now. Um, and oh, I'm yeah. working a lot on spectrality for my proposal. Um, a couple of, so one of my like OG, I was like, Oh, the Gothic goes American sort of text was, mm-hmm. was Edgar Huntley, which 
not a super great book, but sort of fascinating. It's one of the early sort of like, this is what the American Gothic is. We don't have these like castles and, and uh, ghosts. We have, we have frontiers and Indians yeah. was sort of one of the direct quotes from uh, the, the prologue or something like that. And that's deeply racist, obviously, but many <laughs> things are, um, but super fascinating to look at the way that these sort of like these like culturally like European and old world Gothic was transposed. Mm. Um, I'm also really into, so, so I wrote this article on a foundational text of Argentina called the captive. Um, I recommend checking it out because for another, another of those sort of like, what does the Gothic look like in the Americas questions? It's, that's, that's mm -hmm. really just like rad to check out. Um, and then who, who, what was that text and who is it by? That's yeah, that's called the captive in English and it is by Esteban Echevarria who also wrote um, the slaughterhouse, which is this just like gnarly short story. Um, talk about political allegory. It's like the most like hit you over the head with a frying pan sort of allegory. It's just too direct, <laughs> but I like that a lot. I think that's fun. Um, very dramatic, very romantic with its sort of central hero, but gothic and it's sort of like um, blood curdlingness, uh, I'd say. Awesome. Yeah, those, oh, those are great. Those are some great picks. <laughs> yeah, those are my top. I try to go for the South American texts, go for the American texts, but uh, oh, absolutely. But I'm, I'm yeah. still working on it. There's and there's a couple of other. Um, you can always find some good fun. Some it's not gothic, but some gothic elements in Bolaño. He's got uh, Chile is very haunted. I think in Bolaño. Mm, um, and so I, I recommend that as well. Well, no doubt. Well, fantastic. It has been great having you on. This has been an amazing conversation. It's been really awesome. I really appreciate it so much. It's nice to be able to, to talk about, again, the separation between my day job and the organizing work, but how they really are um, in some ways intellectually feeding into each other, at least. I really I, That was a great opportunity. Thanks so much. Absolutely. And uh, just, just for our listeners, where can we find you? Where can we find your work? Where can we find your political activity? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at, at RoarLaura. It's R-A-W-R-L-A-W-R-A. -A -A. Um, on the internet, you can find me. I have a like a professional website through UChicago. It is um, voices.uchicago.edu slash lcolinary, L-C-O-L-A-N-E-R-I. Um, don't find me in person. That seems weird. <laughs> <laughs> go, go to that site. But find me on the internet. Yeah, if you Google my name, you're gonna find a series of angry op-eds in the school paper about how my uh, they need to recognize our graduate students union. Hell yes, they do. Hell yes, they do. <laughs> and you can you can always find me on uh, on the spiritual plane. Excellent. That, that is our preferred contact method at Horror Vanguard is to astral project, <laughs> and we will all meet on on the Horror Vanguard ghost plane. Um, again, all of those. Uh, all of those links uh, to your social media and things like that will be in the show notes. So please do check those out to all of the listeners. Uh, but thank you again so much for coming on uh, to talk with us. Thank you, John. Thank you, Ash. Really just stay spooky. Thanks for tuning in, creeps and comrades. And remember, stay, stay spooky. spooky.